This podcast is a product of the 4th and Inches Network. A podcast network designed to keep Husky fans up to date on their favorite programs around UW. Enjoy the show and go dogs. Go dogs. Go dogs. Welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. Mark, we've finally done it. We have broken into the world of the Twitter sphere, and we have our very own Dog and Duck Show Twitter account. Give us a follow at Dog and Duck Show. Mark, how you doing, my friend? Uh, Warren, uh, a heavy heart today, a heavy heart today as we uh, mourn, you know, the loss of, of one of the great characters of, of college football um, in Mike Leach. But uh, other than, than carrying that, that heaviness, uh, glad to be here, you know, with you and a chance to, uh, to talk a little bit about his legacy as well as some other dog and duck news. Well, you summed it up well. He is a character... He has a legacy, and uh, tonight we will be talking about our top five Mike Leach moments, and then a little bit of what Mike Leach has meant to us, to the Pac-12, to college football, and uh, to football in general uh, across the country. Certainly one of the most unforgettable coaches that football has ever known, and uh, so we as dogs and ducks say to uh, all of our cougar friends and fans, uh, we mourn with you. We celebrate what uh, Leach meant to you, to, to that team. And uh, we, we hope that uh, the time we, we share talking a little bit about Mike Leach tonight uh, might just be a tribute to what he meant to all of us here at the Dog and Duck Show. Uh, but Mark, why don't we dive in first with a little bit of dog and duck news and, uh, here I'll switch it up a little bit. Why don't we start with the duck news? What's, uh, what's happening in the duck world right now? Well, you know, the, uh, the biggest news going on right now for a lot of teams has to do with the transfer portal. And that's certainly the case, uh, for Oregon, uh, we talked about last week, really, the two biggest losses for Oregon in the transfer portal were linebacker Justin Flo, who's kind of had an injury-riddled career, basically has had one healthy season at Oregon and, and not a particularly successful season, you know, was ninth on the team in tackles this year, which isn't what you would have expected from him coming into the year. And uh, wide receiver Dante Thornton also entered the transfer portal. He was es- essentially the fourth leading receiver uh, for Oregon this year and just kind of the guy left out of the, of the starting three. Um, but, but had some big plays, some big touchdowns. So those were the two names that kind of cropped up as, as the guys who played the biggest role in this year's team. And Oregon has essentially already replaced them, um, at the linebacker position. They brought in a guy named Justin Jacobs from Iowa, like Justin Flo. He's, he's had, uh, his fair share of injuries, only played two games this past year, But the last healthy season he had in 2021, uh, he was fifth on the team in tackles. So, you know, compared to Justin Flo, who was ninth on on Oregon's team in tackles this year, and Iowa 
always puts together a respectable defensive unit. And so, you know, he's a guy that's been well coached on that side of the ball. Uh, so I think there's there's reason to be optimistic about his capacity to come in and, and be an immediate contributor on the defensive side. And then on the offensive side, uh, Oregon was able to land a wide receiver, Treshawn Holden from Alabama, who was the third leading wide receiver for Alabama this mm-hmm. year. So I mentioned, you know, we lost Dante Thornton, who was essentially fourth for Oregon amongst our receiving core. We replaced him with the third guy from Alabama. So that seems like like if nothing else, at least, you know, filling the slot, if not a minor upgrade. Uh, and so just worth noting that the, that the two immediate transfer portal acquisitions really seem to be plugging the two biggest holes uh, left by departures. So I think there's reason to be uh, optimistic about how the, the transfer portal is unfolding for Oregon already. Well, I mean, absolutely. That's, those are two tremendous bounce back type of recruits for uh, Dan Lanning. And, and, you know, Mark, to be fair, I did note last week in the show that I did think that Oregon would come out ahead in the wash. Uh, I want that to be known. Uh, but obviously there's a huge discrepancy. Are you, are you wanting that to be known because your objectivity has been questioned in some quarters? I mean, why, why did you feel the need <laughs> to, to make that uh, known here, Warren? Well, because, you know, with me pointing out the fact that there does seem to be a massive departure from the Oregon roster, uh, I don't want to be one that, um, you know, that gloats as they go out and then minimizes the fact that Oregon probably will end up replacing all of these players with more effective players. But it is a little fun to watch the the mass exodus. I'm not going to lie. That's why we have the dog and duck show. I think last, last I checked, uh, Oregon had about 16 guys in the transfer portal. A lot of those guys, highly rated recruits coming out of high school, whether or not you as a, a Duck fan deem them as meaningful losses after a year or two in the program is debatable. But when they were coming in, there was certainly a lot of fanfare around a lot of these players who are now leaving the program. Yeah, and I, I think um, I don't necessarily deem any of them as minor losses in terms of their ability to play it's more the the contribution that they were able to provide so I think the perfect example is Oregon's had two guys that have landed at the University of Nevada Nevada's head coach Ken Wilson was a assistant at Oregon under Mario Cristobal uh, and now running back Sean Dollars and linebacker Jackson LaDuke have both landed at Nevada. And this is pretty clear to me. Both both guys are talented players. When they got on the field, they showed that they could compete at that level. Sean Dollars in particular averaged over six yards a carry in his time at Oregon, but he only had 49 carries total in the last four years because he was buried behind CJ Verdell, Travis Dye, Bucky Irving, Noah Whittington. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he just was not able to, you know, he had a season-ending injury in the midst of their so uh, Sean Dollars is a guy who I look at as like, I felt great knowing that Sean Dollars was maybe the third or fourth option for Oregon at running back this year because it told me how deep Oregon's running back core was. 
At the same time, he's transferring to Nevada where he's probably going to have a chance to be their starting running back. If he's healthy all season, you know, could maybe have a thousand yard season and, and really kind of make a statement of his own. And so I don't look at his departure as meaning there's something wrong with the culture at Oregon or something like that. I just look at it. Sean Dollars is a highly competitive guy who just wants to get on the field. And when you bring in highly touted recruit after highly touted recruit after highly touted recruit at every position on the field, there are going to be guys because they're ambitious, because they want to play, that are are not going to be comfortable, you know, being third or fourth string. And I think those two guys are a perfect example. I wish them nothing but the best. And I think most of the guys who are transferring out of Oregon are transferring out of Oregon because they're looking to get more playing time. And I wouldn't be surprised if you would see them land at other schools like Nevada that are maybe a, a step below Oregon, just because it's going to give them a chance to get a lot more meaningful time on the field. And that's going to be the case, I think, with this transfer portals. We're going to see guys that were highly touted coming out of high school that don't pan out at the top level. They go down. Then we're going to see guys that were not as highly touted that are at schools like Nevada that have a starring role. Now they're looking at an opportunity to go and play for a big time program in uh, you know in the Pac-12, the SEC, what have you. Mark, a couple of guys that caught my attention in the Oregon transfer portal um, would love to just get your feedback on. Well, first of all, I noticed that Justin Flo's brother, Jonathan Flo, has also entered the transfer portal. I don't really know a lot about Jonathan other than he's a you know six foot, uh, 210 pound safety, four star guy. Uh, what what does that mean to the program to lose a guy like Jonathan Flo, who didn't come in as heralded as Justin, but obviously still a really prized recruit? Yeah, really prized recruit, and you know, similar to some of these other guys, just buried on the on the depth chart. You know, I don't think he really received any meaningful snaps this year. I mean, his name was not a name that came up if you were watching. Oregon play and watching the guys in their secondary. And so with his brother transferring, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, when he committed to Oregon, the assumption was his brother was going to be one of the best players on the Oregon defense. And I'm sure the mm -hmm. assumption was I'm going to be a part of this legacy as well. His brother is now going elsewhere. He may want to go elsewhere and play with his, with his brother, you know, I would expect him to. So um, yeah, but I, but it's the same story. It's it's not like he was, you know, one of the primary defensive backs for Oregon this year or a guy even that they were expecting would be a starting player next year. I think um, talented player, obviously highly touted recruit, but, you know, the guys ahead of him were also highly touted recruits mm -hmm. that, have, that have managed to earn the spots. So one of the, the fun things about this transfer portal time is that it feels like any time a good player or a presumably good player enters into the transfer portal. There's this almost like this shopping type of buzz that you get of, whoa, what if we could get this guy and two players from Oregon that I think have caught the attention of Husky fans is tight end uh, Molokai Matabao and yeah. Byron Cardwell. 
Matavao is a, a big tight end, a highly rated, and then Cardwell, also a highly rated running back. One of, I believe, three or four highly rated running backs that have entered the portal from Oregon this season. So what can you tell me or Husky fans about Matavao and Cardwell if for any reason, you know, the Huskies were be able to make a pitch to those guys? I'm really glad you brought up Matavayo, uh in particular, but first I'll, I'll mention uh, Cardwell. I Very similar story to Sean Dollars. In very brief time uh, playing, showed a capacity to be running back. I think coming into the year, Oregon fans were expecting Sean Dollars and Byron Cardwell to be Irving and Whittington. We didn't understand how good these two transfers were going to be. Yeah. So I think Oregon fans expected Dollars and Cardwell to be really big time. And then Cardwell had an early injury and was basically, uh, I don't think, played in the last 11 games of the year. I think the Georgia game was the only game he even got in. Mm. Similar to Dollars, he's a guy that when he's on the field, he's shown that you know he can average five or six yards a carry. And so he's going to find a home somewhere. It'll be interesting where. Um, if But if Washington's pursuing him, I would I would think that they would feel you know confident that he's the type of guy that could step in and be an immediate contributor if he's if he's fully healthy uh the Montevile thing i i have a little more complicated thoughts on Warren, and mm. uh this goes back to the week leading up to the husky game and oregon uh sends out a couple players at a time after practice to get interviewed it's different players every day uh you know it's kind of their one chance to to speak on on something and so Montevile went out uh this is a couple days before the husky game and he made the joke, quote, he said, uh, we look forward to putting down some dogs mm. on Saturday. Yeah. And the dog lover in me, Warren, mm. uh, really, it really hit hard. And then he said it again. It was like he kept repeating this as mm. kind of like this, this joke that he thought yeah. was pretty funny. And I, I told our, our mutual friend, Ryan, Big Duck fan, I told him at Autzen Stadium before the game, uh, there was a moment where the Oregon uh, duck came out with like a stuffed Husky and kind of beat it into the ground. Right. And fellow dog lover, we kind of looked at each other and we said, Oh, I have a, I have a bad feeling about this. Like the cruelty to animals piece. It's just, it's not going over. Well, I told him about Montevideo's comments. And so I feel like this was good to just kind of get this energy out of the locker room. I did mm -hmm. not feel like good player, made some good plays uh, for Oregon this season. I think on the field, you know, he's talented maybe part of his penance is going and, and embracing the Huskies and kind of getting back in good with the canine community. But, <laughs> uh, but the dog lover in me uh, is, was just kind of glad to have that energy out of the locker room. So um, that that's my take on him. So it's kind of a palate cleanse for you. Exactly. Exactly. And, yeah. and truthfully again, so Oregon this year, uh, they played four tight ends on the regular. They actually had lineups where all mm -hmm. four of those tight ends were on the field at the same time. Yeah. Terrence Ferguson is probably the best of them. He's coming back. Patrick Herbert, Justin Herbert's younger brother, he's a young guy. He, he's going to be back. I think Cam McCormick somehow has like a seventh year of eligibility or something ridiculous. <laughs> so I think he's still going to be on the roster next year. So it was if Matavayo came back, it was still going to be in this thing where they're they're throwing snaps to four different tight ends. Um, they've mm -hmm. certainly got a, a a good freshman coming in that's going to be competing for those snaps as well. So again, it's just it's a stacked position group, and I think he's he's looking for a little more 
consistent time on the field. Yeah. Well, as you know, as I mentioned, there does seem to be a difference in terms of the the philosophy and even just the results of what we're seeing between Washington and Oregon when it comes to the transfer portal. Thus far, Washington has had three players enter the transfer portal. Interestingly enough, though, Mark, the that two of the three guys who have entered the transfer portal are leaving from the position group that seemingly needs the most help, which yeah, that's a culture problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, it's got that's got to be it. But we've got we've got two defensive backs, well, a safety and Cameron Williams who came in with the 2019 class, started as a true freshman, and really was an alternating starter for a couple of years along with. Asa Turner and uh, Alex Cook, he, for whatever reason, could not find his footing with this, uh, you know, Husky defensive coaching staff and decided to opt out at the end of the third game of the season um, and, you know, didn't play the rest of the season, which in retrospect, if he had not done that, he probably would have been a seven or eight game starter yeah. if he had just stuck around long enough and withstood the injuries. Nonetheless, he's gone. He's got one year of eligibility left. And then the the other uh, you know transfer um, being uh, another another defensive back, uh, Zakari Spears, who was one of our highest rated remaining recruits. I think it was a high three star in that in that defensive backfield. And again, for some inexplicable reason, we never saw him out on the field this year, even though we were in dire straits for help in the defensive backfield. So that's that's a bit of a perplexing situation. But yeah. uh, on the good news of that, the Huskies did get a recruit yesterday. Um, technically, he's not considered transfer portal. He's a, a commitment from uh, the junior college ranks, cornerback, uh, Thaddeus Dixon, and uh, I think this is one of those stories that I that kind of goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago, Mark, with a guy that comes out of high school, not that highly recruited, and then turns into something in college. Thaddeus Dixon, if you look at his um, two four seven, he's listed at five eleven and a half and one hundred and eighty pounds, but now he's uh, listed at six foot two, 195, maybe 200 pounds as a very physical, long cornerback. Uh, so uh, preseason All-American this year for his division. But uh, that's definitely an, uh, an encouraging sign. That's the first, uh, you know, well, I guess, again, t- technically not a transfer portal recruit. We haven't technically gotten any recruits from the portal yet, uh, but certainly a guy that's coming in that should be fairly ready to step in and help meet a need in an area that uh, desperately needs some additional support. Um, Can I just jump in here for for a second, Warren? Yeah. As, As an Oregon fan, this is the position group that I'm kind of most interested in of how Washington addresses through the transfer portal, through recruiting, through whatnot. Because if I'm kind of sizing up Washington next year, there's so much to like about what they're going to do on the offensive side of the ball with Penix and all those receivers. 
The front seven seems like it has some pieces in place that really make them formidable. Like having a a secondary that is not up to the standard of the rest of the team is kind of the best case scenario for like an otherwise promising team that somehow ends up going like 10 and two or nine and three because they lose a couple 41 to 38 shootouts or something like that. And so just as an Oregon fan looking at the Washington roster, that's where I'm kind of like, how many guys are they adding? How, mm-hmm. how, what kind of a caliber player? Um, so I, I just kind of wanted to to put that in there. If, if there's other Oregon fans listening to say, this is a, this is a position group worth monitoring because it's probably the best chance for other PAC 12 schools to get a leg up on, on Washington is, is in that area. Without a doubt. And, you know, again, we're going to talk a little bit about Mike Leach in just uh, a few minutes, but this is, this is the kind of Washington team that Mike Leach probably wished he could have played against a team that, you know, (laughs) he could get into a shootout with that doesn't have the caliber of defensive backs that the Huskies did have during that tremendous run with Chris Peterson and and Jimmy Lake uh, on on the defensive backfield side. But to your point, you know, you mentioned the front seven, and that's another big news note for the Huskies. Uh, Defensive tackle Tuli Latula Gasanoa uh, shared that he was coming back again for his final year of eligibility, year six as well. Um, So that's, that's a guy that should really help uh, bolster plugging up the middle of uh, the defensive line. We're still waiting to hear back from uh, Braylon Trice, who uh, just earlier today was named uh, a second team All-American. But if he comes back uh, as one of those edge rushers, that's going to be a tremendous benefit. But your question about the, the defensive backs, I think that is the big concern for Husky fans. Um, in the in the, the high school recruiting ranks, they they look really good. They've got four or five guys that are that are high three star or four star uh, guys that could have the potential to come in and play immediately. And then one of the big rumors that has been you know buzzing around for the last week or so is whether or not there's an impending flip, coming from uh, current Oregon commit, but local uh, Washington recruit, Kayla Presley. Kayla Presley is the the number one rated player in the state of Washington and uh, comes from Rainier Beach, which is the same school that Josh Connerly came from. And, you know, Greg Lewis brought it up when he was on the show with us a few weeks ago, seeing the top player from the state of Washington and go to Oregon two years in a row really, you know, rankled him and he, he wanted to see that change. Presley did come and, and uh, give a visit to the university of Washington, but then his next stop was at the university of Oregon. So who knows whether or not a flip might happen with that. But if we were to flip Presley over, uh, that would be a tremendous addition to that defensive backfield room where we need a lot of help and he could provide it. Worth worth noting, I don't know what kind of a friendship he has with Josh Connerly. We know that they were teammates. Uh but Josh Connerly 
scored a touchdown this season against Colorado because they ran a play for him to to get a receiving touchdown. And if you're an offensive lineman who scored a touchdown, you are going to be so high on the coaching staff. You're going to be so high on the culture and everything. And so if if Caleb has been in touch with Connerly at all, that touchdown could be the difference between him maintaining his commitment or or flipping it. So the Presley story is one of about three or four stories that are kind of floating around. We're recording this on a Tuesday night. It's possible that within the next 48, 48 hours to 72 hours, some of these big you know, questions might be answered. But here are just a few that are floating around for Husky fans to, to maybe keep an ear open for. Um, obviously, Caleb Presley and uh, him potentially flipping the Lincoln Kineholtz story is one that has continued to progress. Kineholtz was a, an unheralded quarterback recruit from South Dakota uh, that Ryan Grubb and Kalen DeBoer seemingly discovered, um, you know, on their own. Offered him back in June. Kineholtz uh, committed to the University of Washington. And then just in the last two or three weeks, his recruiting has gone through the roof as Ohio State has made a huge push to uh, to to take him after uh, their prize quarterback uh, was stolen out from underneath them. So Husky fans are waiting to see if he's going to honor that commitment uh, when signing day comes along. Thus far, he has not decommitted or he has not committed to Ohio State, but that's a big story uh, that that we're going to continue to to keep an eye on. Uh, Four-star wide receiver Tayshawn Lyons is supposed to be making an announcement, I believe, on Wednesday or Thursday, and the Huskies seem to be favored for that. Um, he would be a tremendous addition to that uh, wide receiver room. And then this is the one that's kind of a, a juicy what-if, Mark, and yeah. um, this is this is just a, a sign of the times that we're living in. So at the end of last year's recruiting class, um, our number one recruiting class was a, a, a highly rated four-star wide receiver from, from Las Vegas uh, named Jeremy Bernard. He committed to the University of Washington, um, you know, even enrolled at UW, uh, and then saw Jimmy Lake leave. He saw Junior Adams leave. And he kind of looked around and I guess decided that he wanted to explore greener grass, got, you know, some kind of a great opportunity and offer to go to Michigan State University and play for Mel Tucker. And so we lost our number one recruit from last year's recruiting class after he had already shown up on campus. And, uh, you know, that was just incredibly frustrating, but at the same, you know, side of things, you can kind of understand about if there was going to be a year when a, a kid would leave, that would have been the year. Right. Fast forward, uh, Jeremy Bernard comes back to the University of Washington this fall with his Michigan State Spartans. He sees firsthand Michael Penix and this high-flying Washington offense under Kalen DeBoer. Of course, Michigan State gets obliterated. They have a much uh, worse season than they anticipated that they were going to have under Mel Tucker. And now 
all of a sudden we read yesterday morning that Jeremy Bernard has entered into the transfer portal. Now there's no confirmation, but a lot of speculation. What if Jeremy Bernard were to come back to the University mm -hmm. of Washington, re-enroll, get back into that wide receiver room, and then get this, Mark, next yep. fall, play Michigan State in Michigan State. So kind of a crazy story. I don't know what to make of it, but it, it, what you, do you can't think, make this stuff up. What do you think would be the biggest wrinkle in the uh, – like what if, if, um, if Bernard were interested in going somewhere other than Washington, what, what's the type of thing that might sway him? Well, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that Junior Adams is the one that recruited him. So yeah. Oregon fans have got to be feeling like they've got a good shot at this guy too. It feels like 50-50, right? Yeah, like it feels like either school has a reason to kind of think like, this guy's coming here. Like where where else is he going to go? Uh, right. But But right now the edge I think that Washington has is that their quarterback has already announced that he's coming back. And and so you're already kind of building the momentum on that. Oregon's quarterback situation is still a little unclear. Although I tend to think that this Alabama receiver coming, I don't I don't think he's signing on at Oregon unless he has a pretty good sense of who's going to be throwing him the ball next year. That's just my, my sense. So it, it, I think Oregon fans are starting to feel a little more confident that Nix is going to come back that could prove to be a heartbreak in two weeks but uh Bernard is now I think on the wish list for Duck fans as well as Washington fans absolutely it's a story that I think will leave one fan base feeling a sense of tremendous heartbreak if uh, it doesn't go their way probably Husky fans will feel a much greater sense of loss if you know they yes. have Bernard yeah, sure. and then he ends up with with Oregon, but certainly it's a, a very compelling story that is worth, you know, bringing up whether, I mean, yeah. who knows, maybe he ends up at USC, you know, like right. we have right. no idea at the end of the day, it, it, it could be whoever provides the best, you know, opportunity for him, but certainly he's seen, you know, up, up close and personal, what, how friendly of a wide receiver program Washington is now with Kalen DeBoer and Michael Penix and two thousand yard receivers on uh, one team, which only three schools in the country could make that claim in 2022. So, um, you know, speaking of that, Mark, um, you know, the 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 air raid offenses that that Mike Leach produced. Just off the top of your head, like who would you say would be the the quarterback or the the you know the wide receiver that most benefited from that type of a an offense under Mike Leach? Well, I think um, as far as I mean, he had a run at Texas Tech of just incredible quarterbacks passing them. I mean, the current Arizona Cardinals coach Cliff Kingsbury, he's. He's a less than stellar head coach in the NFL, but was a phenomenal quarterback at Texas Tech. And um, Graham Harrell, who's now made his way as an offensive coordinator at, at several schools in Division I college football, 
he was a phenomenal quarterback and he was there at a, at a particular time with Michael Crabtree, who was the Blitnikoff winning wide receiver mm-hmm. and then went on to have a decent NFL career. I think Michael Crabtree I, is in my mind is like one of the top two or three college wide receivers I've ever seen. Like, I mean, he was phenomenal with, uh, with Texas tech, probably the greatest like on field moment for Texas tech was Graham Harrell hitting Crabtree for the game winning touchdown pass against the undefeated Colt McCoy, Texas team. Mm. Um, that was, a, was an, an amazing atmosphere in, in Lubbock that year. So um, those are kind of the guys that I immediately think of. And then, if, you know, if you, if you go into Washington state, it's, it's probably Gardner Minshew is mm-hmm. the name that you're, that you're thinking of. So th- those are a few names that come to my mind. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about the legacy of Mike Leach. Now, this is, again, we've said one of the greatest characters and innovators in the history of college football. Um, sadly, he passed away um, and uh, you know left behind a, a tremendous legacy. Uh, as the head coach of uh, Mississippi State, uh, but I think for, for West Coast fans, his time spent at Washington State University. He was known affectionately as the Pirate of the Palouse, um, and he died of a heart attack at age 61. Uh, he's known for the air raid system, which has influenced hundreds, if not thousands, of high school, college, and NFL uh, programs over the last couple decades. So, Mark, why don't we take a few minutes and let's count down our top five Mike Leach moments. And I'll, I'll let you begin with number five and we'll count down to number one. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think we're kind of uh, veering this more towards the humorous character side of, of, of Mike Leach. We're not necessarily trying to identify the five biggest wins he had as a head coach. Um, but one take of Mike Leach's that I'll remember, uh, he loved to talk about candy. He has a great uh, post-game interview uh, leading up to Halloween about his favorite Halloween candies. Yeah. Uh, he also has a, a press conference moment where I don't know what prompted the reporter to ask him about candy corn, but it led to Mike Leach just going off on the subject of, of candy corn. And the actual quote is he said, I've never liked candy corn. I think it's just awful. Uh, I think candy corn is awful. You know, it's like fruitcake. There's a reason they serve fruitcake once a year because it's awful. There's a reason they only serve mint juleps once a year because they're awful. There's a reason they only serve candy corn once a year because it's awful. Now that does beg the question of why they serve it at all. But anyway, that's my opinion. Just classic, classic leech where he would much rather give you a full paragraph about candy corn than a full paragraph about, you know, how he was scheming for, uh, for the next opponent. That would, that one uh, sticks out in my mind. Well, and and that leads into my you know number four uh, memory of Mike Leach, and it's really the the incredible contrast between Mike Leach and Chris Peterson. And I always said, even back in the day, that they were college football's version of the odd couple. Here you have Chris Leader, Chris Peterson, who is the Felix Unger, you know, the Jack Lemon character who's buttoned up and always does things the right way a little bit uptight honestly sometimes a little bland in his you know personality and remarks not crazy about talking to the media and then on the other side of the state on the other side of the sidelines you've got Mike Leach who was the perfect 
Oscar Madison, the Walter Matthau character. Um, you know, you never knew what he was going to say. He could say the most obnoxious things. He could say the most profound things. A bit of a slob compared to Chris Peterson. And one of my favorite quotes from Mike Leach is really about this, this comparison. And this is before the Apple Cup. And and Leach, Leach said this about Chris Peterson. He said, he's the guy that the teachers probably always liked and got to school early, got his homework done, and your parents would occasionally say, why can't you be more like that Peterson boy? <laughs> but no, he's a fantastic guy. I can see why my parents thought I should be more like him. <laughs> At this point, it probably won't happen, but I can see their point of view a little bit. And, um, uh, you know, Chris Peterson had some beautiful words to say about Mike Leach. This was just posted a few minutes ago on Twitter, but this comes directly from Chris Peterson. He said, this one hurts. I will never forget Mike Leach. I always thought of him as a friend and the most interesting person I knew. I never thought of him as a rival, but as a, a master of his craft and a person who truly revol revolutionized the game. I love seeing him away from the gridiron because I always left our encounters laughing, smiling, and somewhat bewildered. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't wait to share the wild and crazy conversations I had with Mike. Truly one of a kind. <laughs> there is always... One more Mike Leach story, but there will never be another like him. Love you, miss you, brother, and we'll see you on the other side. And and Mark, if you were to just like try to encapsulate those two yeah. as a couple in like 20 seconds, you've got to look up the video of Mike Leach and Chris Peterson at, at the center of the field, and Mike Leach is eating a banana. <laughs> He's eating a banana. He's talking to Chris Peterson. Somehow the banana breaks and it starts to fall and he catches it and kind of awkwardly tosses it into his mouth. <laughs> and the look on Chris Peterson's face is absolutely priceless. It's just one of those looks of like, who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah. that just was such a great, you know, vignette of the character that Mike Leach was. He was just a fun guy that didn't take himself overly seriously. He kind of was aware of his quirks and he he just leaned into it and people embraced him for it. And I think that he was beloved because of that willingness to just be himself. 100%. And, and that's, a, that's a great uh, tribute that Peterson shared. And, it, and it's funny to think about you know, that, um, that rivalry, which you, you pointed out, you know, uh, such a mismatch personality wise. And then he goes to Mississippi and for the last few years has this rivalry with, with Lane Kiffin and they're not cut from the same cloth either, but both like both characters, you know, both, both guys that That's are going to give a good sound Yeah. Yeah. Both guys with a good sense of humor, um, and you could tell with some of Lane's comments afterwards that they also, you know, shared kind of a special, special connection with one another. So that that's one of the great things about hearing these stories is you realize that everybody that coached against Mike Leach 
just loved the guy. Like they just had this appreciation for him that went beyond who he was as a, as a football coach. Um, well, I'll, I'll go, I'll move on here to number three, Warren. I've got another, another great quote from a press conference and it's a two-parter. Uh, first, he was asked about Bigfoot. And I thought this was a great question to ask Mike Leach that you're going to get an interesting soundbite. And, and he kind of let me down. He said, well, we found the bones of dinosaurs and everything else, but we haven't found bones that I've heard of of Bigfoot. It would be fun if there's a Bigfoot. I hope there's a Bigfoot. My guess would be there's not, which is kind of a kind of a disappointment. You kind of yeah. think Mike Leach might have a theory about Bigfoot. And then the follow-up question goes, well, what about aliens? And that's where that's where Mike Leach comes through for us. He said, aliens, I suspect there is. And I don't know that they're little green men. I don't know if they're specifically in our galaxy. But to me, it's always been naive. On Earth, they say we're the only ones. Really? Why? Have you been to the other planets? Have you checked out the other planets? I mean, to me, it makes more sense that if it happened here, it happened somewhere else than it does if it only happened here. So just a classic again, Mike Leach, is that, you know, uh, more interested to talk about Bigfoot and aliens thoughtfully, you know, with real in intent behind what he's saying. And uh, that that was who he was, is he he was always kind of thinking about other things in addition to the, the, the play sheet in front of them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think maybe the reason why people love Mike Leach and love these stories is he's kind of that quirky uncle that, yeah. you know, every family either has or wants to have. And you never really know what he's going to say. Sometimes he could be a little ornery. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. he could be off color or even just uh, flat out wrong. Yeah. But he was a, you know, he seemed to have a good heart and he was always, you know, the kind of guy that you never walked away going, okay, this guy is just, you know, he's just blowing smoke. He's just, you know, saying whatever I want to hear. He he was a guy that would just let it loose and had a lot of fun doing it. And, and I think that that really resonated with his players as well um, in the, for, in most situations, at least. And uh, maybe one more than than anybody else, and that's uh, number two on the list for me is Minshew Mania and the Mike Leach mustache moment. And so you you mentioned Minshew; he was this um, you know grad transfer quarterback from East Carolina. Nobody anticipated that he would come in, uh, win the starting job, that he would really have any legitimate success and then ultimately really became the best quarterback during Mike Leach's tenure with the Washington State Cougars and his career this is this is Minshew Minshew's charisma his apparent you know ability to to rally his team around him made him a, a bit of a cult hero in you know in Pullman and really across the country and part of what they rallied around was was Gardner Minshew's mustache and so you you, know, you may remember that at the the Washington State Colorado game uh somehow the fans got a hold of thousands of fake mustaches and they were all wearing these mustaches at the game the you know, the, the Cougars were ranked number eight in the country. Everybody was feeling really good. They come away with a 31-7 win 
uh, over uh, the Buffaloes. And um, while Mike Leach is giving his post-game interview, just a, a enthusiastic Gardner Minshew runs up, gives Mike a hug, and slaps one of these fake mustaches, you know, crookedly on his lip. Yep. And Leach doesn't reach up and pull it off. He yeah. almost like, you know, stays completely straight faced during this entire interchange. Mitchu makes some remark to the camera, then runs off to be with his teammates and leaves Leach in the middle of this interview. And I just love Leach, just the way that he, you know, deadpans uh, to, to the camera, to the interviewer and says, I don't even think he had a mustache when we recruited him. And uh, and then he goes into this whole diatribe about people don't give enough attention to the rest of the facial hair on his face and all these kind of yeah. things. But I think that, that, that just that seven second, uh, you know, interlude with, with Minshew and Mike Leach says so much about the way that his players related to him that, I mean, how many, how many coaches in major college football could have the kind of relationship with their star quarterback that the quarterback could come up to him during an interview on national television and stick a fake mustache on his face and, and somehow believe that that was okay. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so it was just a great moment. And one of the ones that I'll always remember about Mike Leach. Oh, that is, that is a, that, that sums a lot of it up right there. Um, yeah. He just had an ability to just kind of um, embrace the, the kind of the bizarre. And, <laughs> uh, and so something like that of someone sticking a mustache on his face, his natural inclination is of course he's going to go with it. Like, you know, because yeah. that, that that's more interesting to him than, uh, than a life without a mustache. Uh I think for, for my number one, I'm going with, I think this is probably the Mike Leach video that went viral the most. Mm. And it was at a Pac-12 Media Days news conference and somebody asked him to rank the mascots as if they were fighting one another in a battle. And I, I've heard that actually one of Mike Leach's favorite pastimes, like in private, would be to like... <laughs> discuss like if two college football coaches got put in the octagon against one another <laughs> how they would do in a fight so he he would have fun with his coaching buddies just kind of saying like all right like who would beat charlie weiss how would charlie weiss do in the octagon like he would just kind of throw things out like that he he had a good time with this so he gets asked about the uh the pac-12 mascots and he he doesn't bat an eye he just this is what he says warren is he says i'm gonna say the wildcat is out meaning Arizona. Yeah. And he says, the Trojan, does he have a horse or is he on foot? Does he have a bow and arrow or just his sword? Uh, the Bruin, definitely formidable. You have another bear up at Cal. The tree, I bet that tree is going to get chopped down unless we're going to go with a bird. Somebody might get pecked or something. I don't know. That's a reference to the Stanford Cardinal. Right. Oregon, he says, the duck, well, the duck might lose interest and just fly away and get out of there, which maybe good advice under the circumstances you can just hear mike with that that uh that maybe good advice under the circumstances yeah uh, the husky he simply says the husky no chance <laughs> doesn't even give it the honor of saying something about it moves on to the beaver he says the beaver well we'll see how long that beaver can hold its breath 
Uh, the Ute, we're back to, is he on horseback? Does he have a bow and arrow? Did he did he trade for a rifle? Because if that Ute has a rifle, there's some definite problems. <laughs> <laughs> then he gets to my favorite one, Arizona State, and he says, you'd have to get one of those Harry Potter activists to read up on how you kill a sun devil because there's a lot of outside stuff there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with Colorado, he says, just as far as a beast alone, a buffalo is going to be pretty hard to tangle with. And then regarding Washington State, he says, Butch the Cougar is going to have to be clear-minded and crafty. Butch will find a way, no question. Of course, he ends landing on the Cougar as his top choice. But just an unbelievable you know, uh, monologue through all 12 all 12 mascots, uh, just great, great stuff. And I, I think that clip probably got passed around more than any one of his other uh, wonderful, you know, sound bites. I think that was probably the most popular one. That is, that is just so fun. And it, it, you know, I think the reason why guys like you and I like Mike Leach is he's willing to entertain the same kind of ridiculous questions that we will entertain when we're just hanging out with a bunch of buddies and you you and I know we could spend 45 minutes to an hour debating which mascot would win exactly. in, a, yeah. in a fight in the octagon. So to hear, you know, a, a celebrity coach like Mike Leach just lay it all out there is just so rewarding because it makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves for getting into these kind of debates and arguments to begin with. I got this uh, story from uh, our mutual friend, JJ Vansel, and um, this comes from the Twitter account, Los Medina, but this is a great Mike Leach story as well. He said, one time Mike Leach told one of his players that he, that he wasn't going to play, probably at all, but that he'd like to have him start coaching as a student assistant. The kid got pissed and left his office came back the next day and took the job. That was Lincoln Riley. Amazing. So, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Mike Leach's legacy as a coach and as an innovator. Um, and really, you know, what he did specifically in the Pac-12. And Mark, I know you're going to love this, but if you look at his record against UW and Oregon, uh, he won his first game against UW, finished one and seven. Um, with the Oregon Ducks, however, very different. Lost his first three games and finished four and four, winning four out of his last five games to the Ducks. So what I think is interesting to me about that is it felt it always felt like there was this kind of circle of one team having the other team's number a little bit you know, Washington couldn't seem to get past Oregon. Oregon had trouble with Washington State. Washington State couldn't figure out how to beat the University of Washington. Uh, but what was it about, as an Oregon Duck fan, what was it about Mike Leach and those Washington State teams, especially after about year three when he started to kind of get his footing what was it that made uh, Washington State so difficult for Oregon to overcome? Yeah, well, I think, um, it, I mean, you mentioned kind of the the timing. He came in right as the Chip Kelly era was ending. 
and then and then right as the Chris Peterson era was beginning. And so time wise, you know, certainly a much better era to be competing against Oregon than against Washington. Uh, I think what what made him difficult uh, was just simply that uh, Oregon has always always struggled with good quarterbacks and quarterbacks that that know what to do with, you know, um, and Washington state was always kind of that team that, uh, that they, they knew how to carve you up. They knew how to uh, make things difficult for you and they weren't very complicated. You know, Mike Leach had a uh, reporter call him and say, you know, is it true that your offense is basically eight plays? And he said, Oh, that's preposterous. You know, where did you, where did you hear that? And and the reporter says, well, what, what's the truth? And he says, well, the truth is it's closer to 10. Uh, <laughs> and that's, you know, uh, but what Mike Leach did schematically wasn't necessarily overly complicated. It was, it, but it was sound in terms of its, its strategy. And it was difficult to be, I mean, the fact that the Huskies were seven and one against Mike Leach is more of a testimony to how really good those Husky teams were, especially in the secondary. Uh, and and the fact that he won half of his games against Oregon at that time is is just a testament to how creative he was on that offensive side of the ball. Um, I think about the, the game that will, will forever stick in my mind was in 2018, Oregon had just come off of a big win over Washington at Autzen, and then College Game Day announced that they were coming to Pullman for the first time ever, and that was a highly ranked Washington State team with Gardner Minshew at the quarterback position. And that was as much as any game that Oregon has played, Warren. That was a game where I felt like it was over before it started. I just I looked at that crowd in Pullman and I just felt like there is no way Oregon is winning this game. Mm. And and sure enough, I mean, I mean, the Cougars jumped out to a big lead right off the bat, and it was just kind of clear that that was going to be their their night to celebrate. Um, so yeah, he, he certainly, uh, had his moments, uh, against the ducks much more than he did against, against the Huskies. Well, we, we mentioned, uh, Lincoln Riley, but there's just a long list of coaches that have been influenced by Mike Leach that have come out of his system. Uh, Sonny Dykes, uh, you know, Cliff Kingsbury, Josh Heupel, the, the list goes on and on. Um, what what did this, you know, architect of the air raid bring to college football, um, you know, from a, a schematics standpoint? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the most fascinating thing to me is that Mike Leach did not play college football. He went to BYU. You don't think of Mike Leach as being a BYU guy. He went to BYU and played rugby at BYU. Then he went to law school at Pepperdine and then started coaching football at the high school level uh, after that. Like that's not the career arc for somebody that would go on to become kind of one of the most influential minds in the game. Mm -hmm. And yet um, I think what, what he was able to do was he was able to figure out some things about how to spread the field and kind of keep defenses off balance and that it wasn't a matter of overly complicating things. It was a matter of having a few basic principles and repeating those same things over and over again and kind of having 
the ability to counter off what the defense was doing with a very simple, simple check. So Mike Leach's, if you look at Mike Leach's play sheet, it was designed so that the quarterback could audible to any play on the play sheet at any given time. And then if you watch a video of Mike Leach calling the play in, it's you actually see him signal the play, and then he points to his head and he says, think about, and then he signals another play. And what he's essentially saying to the quarterback is, this is the play that we're running. Think about this other play as your, your audible. But he's also empowering the quarterback to say, I'm not telling you to audible to this other play. You can audible to any play in the playbook based on what the defense is doing. So he he was very empowering of his of his quarterbacks because his concepts were were so simple. And the influence, I mean, you mentioned all of the guys, you know, that have now become head coaches. There's a l- longer list of guys at the lower levels, but there was a time where it felt like every school in the Big 12 was running some version of the air raid. Mm-hmm. And now I think if you were to look, especially at high schools in the state of Texas, but I mean, high schools across the country are running the air raid in mass. You know, the principles that he has come up with have invaded, you know, have have taken root in every level of of football. And, and I think he has to be remembered kind of on the short list of like the real Matt, you know, I don't I don't think it's um, inappropriate to say he's up there with like Bill Walsh and Steve Spurrier and, you know, some of these other guys that really changed the way offense is played. I, I think he's absolutely deserving to be on that list. Yeah. And I think you could you could put Chip Kelly on that you know, yeah. on that list with, um, you know, with Leach. And I think what was was fascinating was that for years it felt like the the Mike Leach the Mike Leach air raid offense the the thinking was what behind it was this is an equalizer for a team that doesn't have the same amount of talent as a University of Texas or a University of Oklahoma right and yes. and and so it it always kind of felt like okay a Mike Leach air raid team they you know, they can do more with limited amount of talent than, you know, your typical team that's running the same schemes as the big boys. But, you know, for years it felt like, okay, when Texas Tech goes up against the top teams in the country, they ultimately end up getting exposed. That that was kind of the, the, the MO. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, and a Mike Leach air raid team would shock the world. They would they would defeat a team that they weren't expected to f- defeat. But I think what's been interesting, Mark, over the last five to seven years is seeing the big boys look yeah. at Mike Leach and, and that air raid offense and say to themselves, well, if he can do that with the talent that he's got, what could we do with the talent that we've got? And now yeah. again, we see Lincoln Riley. He's won, you know, a lot of games with Oklahoma and now with USC, three Heisman Trophy winners in the last six seasons as a protege of Mike Leach running a variation of that air raid offense. And now you're I think you have to wonder if you're a college football fan at a school like Washington State, you know. What's going to be that next air raid? 
Well, it's going to be that next equalizer because at, at this point, if the big boys are running the same thing that you were running 15 years ago, it's no longer an advantage. Right. So right. you've got you've got to find that next innovation. But for his time and his era, he totally redefined the game to the point now that the major college programs in the United States are running a variation of his system, which yeah. how many coaches can leave that kind of a legacy behind? Yeah, and it's something that uh, I, I was just reading today that the, the College Football Hall of Fame has a requirement that you have to win uh, 60% of your games in order yeah. to qualify for eligibility. And Mike Is it Leach, like 0.596 or something like that? Yeah, yeah, 59.6 is what he's at. I think it's like four wins short of, of 60 games, so 60%. And I hope they have the good sense to take a look at, at making some sort of exemption because mm -hmm. when you talk about his influence, it's just so clear that that alone, you know, um, and he was successful at these outposts, you know, Lubbock, yeah. Texas, mm -hmm. Pullman, Washington, Starkville, Mississippi, you know, he was not in recruiting hotbeds. He was, uh, those are all schools that traditionally are kind of in like the lower third of their conference in terms of, competitiveness and he won he won in all of those places he was yeah. he was by far the best coach in texas tech history uh at wazoo he had four straight seasons of eight plus wins at a place mm -hmm. that i think they had won six games total in the four years before he got there and he had a stretch of eight nine ten nine you know 11 he had an 11 win season there which is the best season they've ever had yeah um and then at Mississippi State, he was he was just getting going there, but he had he had notched some major upset wins. Um, his first game at Mississippi State was against the defending champion LSU, and they set a record for most passing yards in SEC history and beat LSU. His last game um, coaching Mississippi State was an upset over Lane Kiffin's Ole Miss team in the Egg Bowl. And so, um, you know, he bookended his time there at Mississippi State with a couple of really wonderful upsets. So he was he was successful on the field. He was successful as an innovator, you know, in the schematics. And, and then, as we've mentioned, just, you know, an all time character of the game as well. So there's just so much uh, to that legacy that that he's really going to be missed. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Um... Any final thoughts before we we close this one up for tonight? I I do just want to return uh, to the Oregon recruiting on on one note that even as we were recording tonight, Oregon landed another recruit, and importantly, he is a punter. This was a major source of concern for Oregon fans this year. Our punting game was not sound, as we saw in the Oregon State game multiple times. They landed a punter. His name is Luke Dunn. All I know about him, Warren, is he is from Australia. He's not showing up. He's got to be good. Reports. Yeah, there's there's no star ranking next to his name. But you're telling me we landed on Australian punter, and I'm saying, excellent. <laughs> that sounds sounds great. I've never had a I've never seen a team go wrong when they've got an Australian punting. So I'm I'm over the moon about that. Yeah, the Huskies have had an Australian punter, Joel Whitford. He was he was great during his time with us. That's, you know, that's another interesting little wrinkle and in innovation is the discovery of Australian 
uh, punters in college football, which I believe started at um, at Utah. And uh, so, yeah, that that as trivial as that might seem, a good punter can make a world of difference. And uh, that that is a a big time pickup that won't really affect the recruiting rankings, but could certainly affect the outcome of a game or two over the next few years. Uh, well, we we will wrap things up. You know, we're we're talking about Mike Leach. We want to honor his his memory, yep. and um, I don't want to take away from that. Uh, but certainly, the the Pac-12 continues to be a place where characters are welcome. Deion Sanders seems to be stepping in and filling uh, those shoes pretty nicely. And uh, we'll we'll go into deeper detail about Dion on another episode, but uh, he, he got his first big time commitment from a four-star uh, running back, Dylan Edwards. Uh, saw another guy, another highly rated guy today on Twitter that announced that he was canceling his visit to Michigan this weekend and going to Colorado instead. So... Keep your eyes on Deion Sanders. And as he said in his little hype video, we coming and uh, I ain't hard to find. So uh, we'll be all watching and seeing what kind of a character Deion Sanders becomes in the Pac-12. But certainly he is already making his mark very much like Mike Leach did in his own unique way as well. Fantastic stuff. Fantastic stuff, Warren. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to the Dog and Duck Show. Don't forget to follow us on our new Twitter account, at Dog and Duck Show on Twitter. We'd love to have you follow. We're going to use that account to try to uh, post provoking, uh, thought-provoking, maybe debate-provoking questions that will interest both Dog and Duck fans. Uh, We want to... Um, you know, like and retweet dog and duck related news. So give us a follow so that we can uh, follow you back and keep up with everything happening in the world of dog and duck. Uh, But continue to listen to us on the dog and duck show. Thank you everybody for listening for all my dogs out there. Go dogs. And for all my duck fans, go ducks. (laughs) 